Good morning. Great to see you all. Um, and great to have those of you who are joining us via live stream uh, worshiping as well. I want to invite you to turn to Daniel 2, uh, starting in, we're actually going to begin in verse 31, as we look at this next passage in a very strangely comforting book, as I've read it this fall. Strangely comforting for these uh, times of upheaval. I want to tell you about a, uh, a magazine that was in print for 20 years. It was called Adbusters. Adbusters created what we might call subversive art. And in their magazine, you would find these glossy, uh, glossy advertisements produced by corporations except with a twist. They would take existing, advertise them, and they would kind of twist it to make you sort of like see what you didn't see before about the company. So, for instance, there would be a stock photo of a Big Mac. And in the classic McDonald's font, it would just say, 52% fat, right next to the Big Mac. Or they would take a, a, a glossy ad for new Nike sneakers, except the sneakers would have Sharpie markings on them. Half the sneaker would say, $200 for Nike. The other half would say, 85 cents for the sweatshop. Or take, there was a UPC code, which was this, you know, it's this universal symbol for consumer products, you know? You can just buy whatever you want. Except this time, the UPC code was on the back of someone's head, and the tagline was, you are the product. You flip through ad busters, and you can't see the world the same way again. You can't unsee those ads. They were designed to make you question what you were valuing like these products, and also to get you to, to question what you were not valuing, like your own health or the health of, your, uh, health of others. Subversive art. Adbusters. Our scripture this morning is a classic example of subversive art, and uh, the artist is God himself. The canvas, actually, or the artwork is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And the message of the dream was simple. You are totally enthralled with a temporary kingdom, and you are totally missing the kingdom that will actually last. Your values are all jacked up. So the thing about Adbusters is that already those magazines are dated. You flip through them, and, and they're, they're, they're for a very specific time. But Nebuchadnezzar's dream is an enduring piece of subversive art that is very applicable to our time and very applicable to our life for every generation. Once we see the dream, once we dream the dream, you can't unsee it. You can't see the world the same way either. Everything looks different. We wake up from the dream to realize, oh my word, I've been totally impressed with uh, the wrong kingdom, the wrong value system. And I've been absolutely blind to the kingdom that's lasting, the kingdom that's growing, the kingdom with strength. So let's see the dream together in Daniel 2. Um, to catch you up, here are the, the main players of this scene. You have King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He's destroyed Jerusalem. He's, he's the most powerful person of his day. Then you have Daniel. Daniel's someone he took into exile when he destroyed Jerusalem, Daniel is now a chief advisor in Nebuchadnezzar's court. 
Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, didn't know what it meant. It was from God. He didn't know what it meant. God sent Daniel to have the same dream so that Daniel could like pastor him through God's work in his life. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what it means that you had this dream, and here's how to respond to God. The dream has two main images. You have a statue and a stone. A statue and a stone. Those are the two main images. We're going to look at the statue first in verse 31. This is Daniel speaking to the king. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now imagine with me a statue as tall as the highest skyscraper in this city. It's massive. It's gleaming. At the top of the statue is a face shining like the sun. It's 100% pure gold. And the expression on the face is menacing and just speaks of power and domination and glory. Right underneath the face are arms and chest of silver, valuable silver, precious silver, worth millions or billions of dollars. Underneath is a midsection of a copper-like bronze. And then you can see the legs closer to eyesight. The legs are just iron. The legs are just solid Midwestern iron cut from the core of the earth. And then directly in eyesight are the feet and the toes. And the toes are, uh, they're kind of a mixture. It's like you can see like maybe veins of iron, but then around the veins are packed like clay, like baked clay, which is sort of chipping off at the sides. And what starts out as majestic slowly becomes pathetic. What does this statue, taken in its composite, represent? Temporary human power. Temporary human glory. Temporary human might. Daniel says, you, in verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, civilization, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, that's creation, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. It's true that for a time, God gave Nebuchadnezzar some power. He empowered him to attack Jerusalem. It's right there in the Bible. In fact, he's given all of us some power. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we've been made in God's image. And so, for a time... We bear his brightness. We glow with the glory of God. This is intentional. We rule over civilization to some degree or another. We have influence over how creation goes to one degree or another. Nebuchadnezzar just had a lot of it in God's sovereignty. And you know what? It was a golden era. It was a golden age. One of the best ages that Babylon had ever seen or would seen since before being taken over by the Persian Empire. 
So here's the adbuster part. Here's the part that you can't unsee. It's the cascading decline in quality after the golden era. As you move your eyes down from the head to the toes. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you. Keyword, inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there's a fourth kingdom, which is more of a smash mouth kingdom. It's a little less golden and a little bit more iron fist. Uh, Iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Kind of a destructive kingdom. And as you saw, the feet and the toes, partly of clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Uh, It says uh, in verse 43, it's not going to hold together. So we go from a golden head to a silver chest to a bronze belly button to iron legs to crumbling toes. And it's just, it goes from majestic to gross and weird. So, human statues are temporary. Human glory is temporary. Here's a question for the kids. I don't see any kids here, but I can, I, oh, yes, I see kids here. So we got kids here, and we got kids watching, and I have a question for the kids. Have you ever created something that you were really, really proud of? like a fort, or a Lego set, or a sandcastle, and then after that, it got totally destroyed. Maybe the waves came and destroyed the sandcastle that you worked for hours on, or maybe the cleaning crew, mom and dad, came through and took your fort and turned it back into a living room, and it's totally sad, isn't it? totally demoralizing. Like you put in all that work and then there was this after that. And one commentator says that every human endeavor is haunted by a phrase, after that. All human work is temporary. You build a great company and then after that, it can go into bankruptcy. You can win a huge game and then after that, you can injure your knee. You can raise great kids And then, after that, they never call. You can make the most amazing travel plans for the year 2020. And then after that, COVID-19 hits. Nebuchadnezzar's head was remarkable, golden, glorious. After that, the toes were clay and vulnerable. So, What's God doing? He's subverting Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And he's subverting our pride too. You know what? It's an act of grace for Nebuchadnezzar. God loves him. God loves you too. He loves me. He wants us to stop being enamored with the huge statue, which is so attention-getting and so beguiling and so bright and so glorious and so temporary so that we can turn our attention to the only kingdom that isn't temporary, and that's the stone. That's the second image. We have the statue, but here comes the stone. Don't miss it, or it will fly right past you, and you won't even notice it. You won't even notice what it's growing. You you won't even notice what it's doing. Uh, So Nebuchadnezzar dreams about it, and Daniel tells us about it. Verse 34, verse 34. 
Daniel says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Okay, so you have, a, you have something small, a stone, but it's of a divine origin. No human hand cut the stone out. It was cut out by the hands of God. It comes from another world. God seems to like to start small, to be unimpressive, to go slow. Most people won't see it. Most people are too distracted by the statue to notice what God is doing. Look at verse 34, the second half of verse 34. And it struck the image, that is the the statue, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Uh, But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the statue, right, it starts out impressive. It is impressive. It's a golden era. And then eventually it becomes like that chaff that the wind drives away that Psalm 1 talks about. It just, like a dandelion gone to seed, just floating off. You never see him again. But the stone, completely different arc, completely different trajectory. The stone starts out unimpressive. Just a breakaway rock from a mountain. But then over time, it crushes the statue and then fills the whole earth. The statue represents the powers that look so sturdy and unbreakable now. But they're built on the expedient values of corruption and shortcuts and pushing out the weak and vulnerable and rejecting people. Dallas Willard said that Western culture is built on rejection. The stone, however, represents the power that looks weak. It looks slow. It's not impressive. It's like, what is that mustard seed? But then it's built on the eternal values of truth and goodness and beauty. And eventually the stone is going to overcome the statue. It's the surprise ending of history that we all long for. Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, that's the stone, that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So, for a time, God invests his glory and stature into Nebuchadnezzar and into human leadership, and it's huge and fearsome. And then God chooses something small and unassuming, like a stone, to topple the whole statue. This is the kingdom that we need to pay attention to now. It's the kingdom that we need to watch for and see, because it's not going to try to grab our attention like the statue grabs our attention. It begins in weakness and humility, and it grows in weakness and humility and vulnerability, and one day it will dominate, and we will want to have been a part of it. Think about it this way. Consider what happens to a young couple when they have their first child. Here you have two parents with strength, with intelligence, with an orderly life. They speak the language. They get paid a salary. And they're in charge, right? 
And something really small is given to them. Something hidden is given to them, a, a baby in utero. And the baby grows in a hidden way and is in great need, actually, and, and, and greatly dependent upon the parents. Yet in time, that baby will enter their home and upend everything in their life. And it will grow to, in some ways, dominate the home. Indeed, that baby will one day grow in power beyond the power of the parents and will, at some point, probably bury them. And that's how the stone grows. As a matter of fact, that's how this prophecy was fulfilled. The stone was a baby. Didn't come from human beings. It came from God. Came from God's side. Messiah Jesus is the fulfillment of that stone. He entered our world as a vulnerable baby, and most people missed his birth. A few people knew. A few people saw it. A few people paid attention, but not the innkeeper. Sorry, no room here. Most people missed it. His own hometown missed it. Like, uh, they rejected him in Nazareth. Um, when it came uh, time for Jesus to build his kingdom to, to gather people, he would pick up all of the odd bricks that, that other people had left behind, didn't pay attention to. The people that just seemed too weak and vulnerable and slow. Jesus included and said, hey, I'm going to build my church on this rock. When it came time for Messiah Jesus, this stone that the builders rejected, to confront the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It looked like the, the statue just went, you know what, crunch. Bye-bye, your kingdom's done. That was the moment that the statue began to crumble because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to be crushed. And he came to, in weakness and vulnerability, give us his life. That's how he would rule. That's how he would reign. And then the stone that the statue crushed became the chief cornerstone became the stone upon which the kingdom of God was built, my life for yours. God raised him to life and set him on the foundation of the earth. And everything in this kingdom is built on the sacrifice of Jesus and his beautiful, powerful resurrection. Father Eric Olson puts it this way. The way of Jesus is more stern and splendid, more rock-like and lasting, more beautiful than the temple stones of old Jerusalem. Christ's temple is always built on the knees. In humbled prayer, hand-to-foot washings, reconciliation with tears, and framed out with crossbeams. Mortared in blood, often from hearts pierced by betrayal and abandonment. His temple body is raised up in cruciform glory, and that is how it becomes unshakable. That's the way of the stone. That's the kingdom of God. Now look, this dream isn't just for Nebuchadnezzar. It's for all of us. How are we supposed to respond to it? You can't unsee it. Statue's going down one way or another. The stone is growing, but we often might miss it. So how do we respond to this dream? Well, first... Like Nebuchadnezzar, we get down on our knees and repent. We get down on our knees and we call out for mercy. Verse 46 pictures Nebuchadnezzar doing this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face 
And he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is standing up, totally enamored with the statue. He wakes up from the dream and he gets on his face and he confesses God to be Lord. Um, one thing that we share in common with Nebuchadnezzar, there are some differences, but one thing we have in common with him is how enamored and beguiled we are with the statue of human achievement. It just impresses us too much. It gets our attention for too long. We love big numbers. We love momentum. Outward signs of success. Charismatic personalities. Situations where beautiful and dynamic people cluster together. Those are the ones that get our attention. Our fixation on the statue is only matched by, in some cases, our contempt for the stone and all the people that the stone includes. We are, like Nebuchadnezzar, tempted to sidestep the unimpressive people in our life and shun what seem to be pathetic situations that would make us look bad. The people with little to offer us the small beginnings, the initiatives that don't have anybody backing them. We're so busy gazing at the statue that we totally miss the stone. It whizzes right past our heads. It grows right under our feet, but we're not paying attention because power and glory are so big and beautiful and bright. May this dream bring us to our knees where Nebuchadnezzar is, on our, on our faces where Nebuchadnezzar is, and where Daniel was the night before, crying out for mercy, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive my sin for chasing down all these impressive situations and missing who you value, ignoring those you've chosen. That's the first step. The second step, after repenting, is getting up, standing up, and serving the stone. Investing all of our resources and all of our time, no matter who employs us, to serving the kingdom of God as pictured by the stone. Verse 48 pictures Daniel serving with the Spirit's power. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel, right, he's serving in Babylon, but who's he truly serving? He's serving the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, the kingdom that will reign forever and ever. He happens to be on the payroll in Babylon. He's influencing Babylon under the service of Jesus. That's his calling. That's not our calling. That was his calling. What's your calling? What has he gifted you to do? Are you building a statue out of it? Or are you melting all those precious metals and devoting them to the temple of God? Devoting them to the stone? Just talk about public life for a moment. All politics is public life. How do we live together? How do we order life in society? For most, so for those of us who follow Jesus, most of the time, most of us 
are only going to have unimpressive and hidden ways of being involved. Most of us don't have a super public call, but there's plenty of work to do in the public sphere, whether we're doing it as a volunteer, as a citizen, or whether we're doing it as a full-time employee of the government. Consider the path before us. Job number one of a Christian who is getting involved in public life is to learn how to forgive your enemy. That's a very political act, and it's very difficult to do, but is one of the chief ways of serving the kingdom of God, the stone. Our society needs to see people empowered by the Holy Spirit forgiving their neighbor, forgiving their enemy, forgiving people who sin against you. Or what about serving your neighbor? What about noticing potholes on your block and calling the alderman? And when her staff call you back, you not only share about the potholes, you also volunteer your time. Is there anything that the ward needs right now? Because I've got some friends in my city group and we can serve. What about going to the local school council meeting in your, in your local school district here in Chicago and showing up with a calm presence and a constructive mind ready to serve? Or going to the Bronzeville Food Pantry and serving our neighbors who are experiencing food insecurity. Showing up for jury duty. Uh, what about the committee at work? You have a committee at work that decides where the philanthropic money is going to go, potentially. And, but they need people who will sit on the committee as a volunteer and figure out how best to steward those resources. You could serve on that committee. No one will notice it. No one will put it on social media. It may not win elections that you care about, but nevertheless, it is a Christian political act to serve in that way. And you're not serving the kingdom of this world. You are serving the kingdom of God. Most politics is basin and towel stuff. It's service, and it's hidden, and it is part of a kingdom that will never end. That's what it means to get up and serve the stone by the Spirit's power, and all of you can do it. One day, the whole world is going to wake up from the nightmare of the statue. And there's going to be plenty of people who are going to rue the day that they were beguiled and seduced by that golden image. So much that impresses us right now, so much that seems unshakable right now, is going to fall into pieces and be blown away to be forgotten. And there's going to be a stone that had always been growing the rock of Jesus Christ and his church, growing slowly and surely, built on his death and resurrection and spirit. On that day, may we be found standing on that stone, built on that stone. Our life, our family, our church, our public life. Let's pray for a moment. I invite you to take a moment before the living God. And here's an opportunity for you to ask the Lord, Lord, what are ways that I'm just overly impressed with this statue? Either my own or someone else's. Given to celebrity worship. Given to attention-getting behaviors. And just right now, confess that. 
Confess any ways that the statue has earned your allegiance. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for your forgiveness and deliverance. And now ask the Lord, what are ways that your stone is growing under my feet? Ways that I can notice. People to include. Ways to serve. I ask, Lord, that you would give us all a way forward in serving you. And we praise your name, Lord. You are the King of kings. And we declare in this place that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.